electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and welcome to The Exchange. Here's what's coming up. Stocks are falling again today on fears that Fed tightening will lead to a recession. But could they still engineer a soft landing? We'll hear from someone who says yes if they stop raising rates right now. And Europe's energy crisis. OPEC doesn't increase production, while the price cap on Russian oil is going into effect. Will it all make the U.S. an even bigger player in the global energy markets? Plus, the perfect chart. Our technician tells us the one stock chart that looks good, almost too good. We'll let him explain. But first, Bob Pisani with today's numbers. Hi, Bob. Kelly Evans, so great to see you back. I love seeing that beautiful face of yours on TV again. Uh, listen, I wish we were up today. Let's take a look at the indexes, and you'll see everything's down essentially 1%. Uh, and it's because we've had an issue with the jobs report stronger than expected, ISM services stronger than expected. But don't worry. By and large, we've had a great quarter. We're up about 13% for the quarter on the S&P 500. Uh, two sectors are weighing down the major averages. Uh, first are technology here. CRM, uh, Microsoft are weighing on the Dow right now. And broadly, uh, I would say Broadcom and other semiconductors are weighing uh, on the S&P 500 overall. The other weak group are financials. Notable weakness in financials today. Now, Goldman Sachs is having a big financial services conference tomorrow. This is one of the big ones. Everybody watches. Uh, American Express is going to kick it off in the morning. So we're going to get an update on how the consumer is doing. Uh, that may have a little bit of an impact on why things are trading to the downside. MX is one of the only financial stocks trading up. The other weak sector are apparel, and that's because PVH uh, lowered, the, uh, lowered their, uh, their uh, uh, I'm sorry, VF Corporation lowered their earnings estimates. This is the second time uh, in the last couple of months that they have done that. So all the apparel makers like Ralph Lauren and PVH uh, are lower. Target, which is uh, apparel heavy, also on the downside. So considering, Kelly, that we've had two reports here, Jobs Report and ISM Services, both stronger than expected, we're only about 60 or so points below where we were at the Thursday close. I know that's not great, but still not bad considering we got this topsy-turvy world where good news is bad news and bad news is good news overall. Still holding up for a 13% gain for the quarter. Kelly, back to you. Great point, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani. It does seem almost consensus now that the Fed will tighten us into a recession next year, but they still could pull off a soft landing, at least according to some economists. Even though that's not what most seem to expect, Steve Leisman is here to explain, Steve. Yes, Kelly, welcome back. The strong jobs report. Bob mentioned the strong services and factory orders. The strong jobs report marked another data point that beat expectations and defied the prevailing outlook for a cooling economy careening towards a recession at least for the moment. But the NAVE outlook this morning showing most but not all respondents still forecast a high probability of recession. Here's the data from the National Association for Business Economics. 57% of their members see a greater than 50% chance of recession. 23%, though, see a 50% chance of a soft landing. Now, aggressive Fed rate hikes designed to slow the economy. That's the primary reason why economists uh, look for a recession. Some think those high wage numbers in the jobs report could prompt the Fed to do more. But Here's what I call the minority report or what the soft landing camp is seeing. It's strong jobs, 
Hard to have a recession without a sharp unemployment rate increase. Peaking inflation. Gas prices are now lower than they were at the start of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Lower interest rates, including a lower 10-year and tighter credit spreads than they had been. Improving supply chains and cost of living increases from the government to Social Security recipients. Thomas Lee of Fundstrat writes, The U.S. economy has been incredibly resilient and soft landing is on tap driven by a major softening of labor markets but not necessarily a rise in unemployment. A key to the soft landing outcome, the Fed has to recognize it's possible, let it happen, and stop tightening before the recession becomes inevitable or unavoidable. Did you glean that from what Chair Powell said last week, that that's the direction the famous hawk may be heading? Um, You mean in terms of a pause? I don't know. I don't think he knows. I think they're going to keep going and may go too far I just think that there's this possibility out there. What happens, Kelly, you, you are a famous reporter from the Wall Street Journal. You start ho- keeping stuff in your notebook and you gather string. Well, there was this. There was the retail sales report. Boom, higher than expected. There was the jobs report. Boom, higher than expected. We did a CNBC rapid update. They upgraded the chance. So suddenly this story about the possibility of a soft landing had some mass to it. I don't know that it's the odds on outcome. But I think it's worth a consideration given the preponderance of stuff that had gathered in my notebook. Well, we have exactly the right person to ask right now because he's skeptical and he's Michael Darda. So Good. Stay with us. Good. Uh, Mike is the chief economist and chief macro strategist at MKM Partners. And Mike, I mean, people will remember us talking when you were pounding the table for the Fed to hike, when you were warning that inflation was coming. What changed and why do you think they now need to slam the brakes? Hi, Kelly. Great to be with you again. Well, The Fed was way behind the curve coming into this year. And what's changed is this rapid succession of 75 basis point rate hikes. So the Fed has really caught up. And, you know, with that comes risk of a downturn. And and that is the, the current debate that you framed. I certainly hope for a soft landing. I think we all do. No one wants the economy to go into recession and people to be thrown out of work. Uh, but I do think it's a increasingly narrow path or window, as Fed Chair Powell puts it, um, to a soft landing scenario. And there's one indicator in particular I think that investors should take note of, and it's this deepening and broadening inversion in the Treasury yield curve. It's really difficult to look at it when that's occurred historically and walk away from that picture highly confident of a soft landing scenario. Is it possible? Sure. But it's increasingly unlikely in my estimation. When, Mike, when was the moment that they went from being too far behind to to have gone and done too much? Was there a meeting? I mean, I thought up until now everyone was on board with the idea of go 75, go 75. Where was the mistake? Or has the mistake not occurred yet? Is the mistake only if they keep going and doing what they're doing? To be completely honest with you, I mean, I think the mistake was simply overbaking it initially. And then it's really difficult to calibrate perfectly and engineer a soft landing. A soft landings require preemption, and we didn't have that. We had a situation where mm. there was evidence of a V-shaped recovery. It was continuing to be denied um, by many commentators and policymakers. And then initially, when inflation started to take off, the view with the temporary transitory crowd was don't worry too much about it. it. It's in a narrow band of mostly goods prices, flexible prices. And so the Fed ended up falling way behind the curve. When you're focused on lagging indicators, you end up in these boom and bust cycles. Yeah. So we need to go 
trace this all the way back to, you know, late 2020, early 2021 to think mm -hmm. about why the Fed's now in this predicament of, you know, a really difficult task of, of engineering a soft in, in other words, Steve, the idea being because they were so far behind, now they have to slam on the brakes. And those who are still worried about yeah. us not being tight enough, like we talk about Aneta Markowska over at Jeffries, who says, look at the labor market, look at what's going on with wages right now. And we're still talking about really strong increases into the first part of next year. And is that why we are not going to see the Fed eager to say, OK, you know what, we'll just step back here. I have a weird view on that. My, my, my first important comment I want to make is, can we take away the lower third on Mike Darda's shot so we can see his fabulous dog that's <laughs> over there? That, I think, is the most important thing. He is so chill, and I'd kill for a dog as cool as that. But listen, um, the point I want to make is we have to get this economy back to where it was. We have to reemploy people, and there are fewer people in the workforce. We have to come to a new equilibrium level of wages that gets people in the jobs where they're needed at the right price. And I don't think that the Fed really should be all that involved in trying to stop that process from happening. We have too few workers in this country, maybe for the demand, but we're going to get to the right level. But we can't, I don't think we should stop it from getting there. And, and just on what Mike was saying, Mike, I've been on board your, the scenario of the cooling economy, but I keep waiting for it, like waiting for Godot, and I don't want to give away the book, but Godot never comes. <laughs> he never gets here. I'm sorry, all you seniors in high school. He never gets there, and I feel like I'm waiting for the labor market to come down. It never comes down. The service sector is still, still chilling. The income and spending numbers we had earlier last week were fantastic, as were the retail sales numbers. We keep upgrading the economy. The second half was stronger than the first half, despite all the rate hikes out there. So I don't know. I'm waiting for this recession, and maybe I'm just starting, starting to think about maybe it doesn't happen. Well, I hope you're right about that, Steve. Uh, you are right about the resilience, in particular in the labor market. Uh, and, you know, oddly enough, that could set us up for Fed over-tightening in right. a deep downturn than widely anticipated. And, and the reason for that is the Fed's going to just keep going here until the weaknesses and the whites of the eyes of all of the strong indicators that, that you just outlined. Where we are seeing weaknesses in some of the more cyclical areas, the ISM data last week pretty, you know, missed slightly, but, you know, certainly not a strong report there. Housing's in a free fall. It's a tiny percent of, of GDP, at least directly, but it leads and, you know, it was booming coming into the V-shaped hey, Mike, can I just uh, chime in real quick guys in the yeah. back if you have a, a housing chart hst1 or hst we're still doing 1.4 million units At, i mean that's still pretty strong everybody talks about this housing recession we're in the middle of first of all people have held on to the bulk of the housing gains they have i get that housing prices are down and declining which happens in a market but they're not substantially below where they were before the pandemic um, and if you look at housing starts, th that would be the change, guys. If you put up the absolute level and you go back to 2019, 2018, we're actually above that level of 1.4 million. So w where is that response? Yeah, well, if you look at the housing and durable goods share of GDP, it tends to peak about two years before a recession. And it's been in a you know fairly significant downtrend. We've got six consecutive quarters of real residential investment contracting. Now, Fair enough. It's, you know, it's not showing up in the jobs data just yet, but you have the Fed pressing forward with ongoing rate hikes despite an inverted yield curve. The money supply data from narrow to broad is now very weak, nominal, but especially real terms. 
And so those three things, housing, the yield curve, and some of the money supply data, all of that was booming coming into the, you know, the, the growth recovery mm-hmm. inflation period, and it's all rolled over very hard. So if the Fed's focused on coincident and lagging indicators here in terms of when to call it quits, then I, I'm afraid a hard landing scenario is more probable than not. So final question, Mike, if the Fed says to you, they, they call you up, you say, OK, you're right, we, we take your point. What do we have to do to get to the soft landing? What do you think markets have them priced in? Do they have to immediately stop raising, just raise by less? Do they have to start cutting rates? What would it take? Yeah, I would, you know, I would be pausing here and waiting for more information. Obviously, that's not going to happen because the Fed views that as as too risky, given that they've already overshot the inflation target so dramatically. So, you know, they're really in a bind here of their of their own making. But I would slow it down, down, if not halt on the rate hikes. And I would be looking at more forward looking data points uh, in addition to to what we just discussed. Yeah. Focus on the tips inflation break-even market, right? I mean, those spreads were going up dramatically as the Fed just sort of inched into tightening and started off too slowly. And now they've come down to levels you could argue, or I would argue, are consistent with price stability on the 10-year horizon, 240 basis points on the 10-year tip spreads. I mean, that's essentially um, consistent with the PCE deflator at 2%. So forward-looking Price level indicators suggest that the you know that that the Fed is tightened yeah. sufficient. And we just showed those charts uh, to mm-hmm. illustrate again. If it were coming from anybody else, but to come from you in particular, Mike, it's a, a big uh, a big point to highlight. Uh, you said they were behind the curve, and now that they need to slam on the brakes. Michael Darda, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Steve, a big thank you to you Pleasure. as well. Thank you, sir. Coming up, we know the saying, so bad it's good, but what about so good it's bad? That's what one technician says about this chart. The setup has been so good, it's actually time to sell, and he'll join us. But first, how's this for a bold oil call? Dan Jurgen says today marks the end of the global oil market of the last three decades and the beginning of a new era for world oil. What that new era will look like as oil hits session lows, by the way, WTI crude at 78 bucks. And there he is, Brian Sullivan, live in Brussels with the fallout from OPEC's decision. Brian, great to see you. The EU sanctions on Russian oil and Moscow may have already found a way around them. Is that right? Yeah, good to see you as well. Welcome back, Kelly. I've got a surprise for you coming up. But after the break, we're going to talk about two things. Number one, if a million and a half or so barrels stop coming into Europe, where do they get that oil? They're going to need it. We're going to talk about the possible sources, including America, and the sort of secretive and potentially very dangerous way that Russia may be trying to get around the sanctions. Some reporting on them buying up a bunch of old tankers. We're going to show you pictures of some of these reported ships. We're going to see it only here on CNBC, and it's right after the break. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. WTI crude is now around $77 a barrel today. Uh, it's fallen substantially on the session. It's actually pretty much at the level where it began the year. And that's as today marks an important day for global energy markets. The EU, EU sanctions on Russian oil officially go into effect. At the same time, a price cap on Russian oil is also being implemented by the G7 nations, including the U.S. This all as OPEC decides not to increase production. Brian Sullivan, live in Brussels, Belgium, with more and the very latest. Brian. Yeah, Kelly. Hey, listen, there's this kind of weird narrative going around, and I can't wait to hear your conversation with Dan Jurgen about it. Like, oh, Europe's energy crisis is fine. They've got natural gas storage for the winter. Yeah, for this winter. The real challenge is going to be next winter when more than half of the gas was filled up from Russian gas this year. We'll talk more about that tomorrow when we hit more on the gas side. For now, let's talk about oil. All right. I think Dan's right. Today really is a new day for Europe because Europe basically sanctioning itself, saying a million, million and a half barrels of Russian oil will not come in. Russia saying, hey, don't worry about it. We're not going to sell it to you anyway or any nation with a price cap. So the two sides kind of doing this as well. The question is, and we've talked about that enough today, Kelly, where exactly is, is Europe going to make up the oil now? There is going to be demand destruction. So the demand for oil will probably go down, right? Their economy is going to take a hit. So maybe that need for as much oil will come off. But let's say and assume it sort of stays the same. Let's call it a million four. I've seen estimates from 750,000 to two. Let's cut it in the middle, a million four. Okay, where do they get that? Well, maybe 300,000 from the U.S., Kelly, maybe a couple hundred thousand from Kazakhstan, a little more from Norway. Those are pretty much the estimates that we've seen, but that, that still leaves a hole of about 500,000. You can see these price targets, by the way, for Brent crude. They show Brent crude potentially going up. Targets can be wrong, but, but those are the targets right now. And as we go into the today, right now, when the sanctions hit, Kelly, there are refineries. There's one in Germany, the biggest in Germany. There's one in Italy, the biggest in Italy, who have effectively said, we're not sure we're going to have the oil to make fuel diesel needed to power trucks. So there is a lot going on and today, a new day for Europe and really the world. And Russia, Brian, are they getting around the sanctions or are they really having an effect? I, I completely forgot to mention that. There you go. Thank you for, for cueing me. It's been a long day. Okay, so we got a document uh, that showed a bunch of ships, old super tankers. We got this document from a source, a Gulfstream tanker chartering about, about 10 days ago. We did some work with tankertrackers.com, marine traffic, thanks to both of them, by the way, to look at a number of ships that were sold to, quote, undisclosed buyers. Now, it doesn't mean that's Russia. It doesn't mean it's China. It doesn't mean any bad actor necessarily. It is just a little bit unusual, and there's been a ton of sales. Rystad Energy told us there have been more than 70 old super tankers sold in the last few months. So we have a pictures of a couple of the ships that were sold recently to undisclosed buyers. Again, we're not exactly sure what the use is for these, but there's been reports that Russia's building up, whatever you want to call it, we'll call it a secret oil navy, so they can ship their own oil. They don't necessarily need a Greek-owned ship or a Western ship that will, you know needs to be financed or insured that those sanctions might kick in on. So I'll say this. These ships, many of them, look like they should be bound for the scrapyard. You can see the pictures we're showing you are old, but instead, they're going to be likely, likely put back on the high seas. We're going to track a bunch of them over the next couple of weeks, by the way, see if they are indeed going to get Russian oil. Because you also risk, Kelly, an environmental 
disaster with all these old ships out, you know, in the North Sea with bad weather. All right. There's a lot of heavy stuff, Kelly, that we've talked about today. It's a serious time, but let's be also honest. It is the holidays. Europe's in for a rough road. So welcome back. And we came here for you, Kelly, because <laughs> we just thought we would end on an upbeat note in the Grand Plaza here in Brussels. All the heavy stuff we've talked about. I wanted to send a little Christmas cheer. It's going to be a tough winter for Europe. Welcome back, Kelly. Right. I don't have a ship for you. But I have a giant Christmas tree. <laughs> Thank you. I was actually going to say, as you were talking in front of those buildings fully illuminated with the Christmas tree lights on, Brian, I mean, are the lights out across Europe or are they on? Are they going to be on for the Christmas season this year? Listen, they're going to be on. It is Christmas, so people are being optimistic. But I'm going to tell you something on a serious note. We'll do more on this on Wednesday, by the way. So tomorrow we're going to focus a lot on natural gas. We've got a really cool shot. We're going to be on the water at LNG. Wednesday we're talking about renewables and more the human angle. I you know me, Kelly. I talk to everybody, right? <laughs> Whoever it may be. And every single person I've talked to, taxi drivers, Uber drivers, it, it, restaurateurs, business people, whatever, all of them say their electric bills, their heating bills have doubled or tripled. Wow. They're not getting increases in pay. If anything, many of them are talking about their family members losing their jobs. Hmm. Europe, and Dan can talk to this probably, really does risk a deindustrialization of things like cars and chemicals and even things like wind turbines where Europe is a leader in making them. How do you make those energy intensive industries right. if the energy is not there or too expensive? It's a it's a scary question for next year. All right. And we'll see you again tomorrow, Brian. Thank you for now, Brian Sullivan reporting in Brussels. So as the sanctions and the price caps move forward, will it permanently alter the global balance of power? Fortune magazine thinks so, crowning Biden the, quote, new world energy czar for rallying leaders around this plan. But will it work? Let's bring in Dan Jurgen. He's S&P Global's vice chairman and author of the book, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Dan, it's great to see you again. And Brian just gave a really comprehensive read there, but he illustrated this kind of odd situation where you have people talking about a crisis, experiencing it as, as a crisis in Europe, and yet at the same time wondering if they've avoided the worst outcome here. Well, first of all, Kelly, let me say uh, welcome back. It's great to see you also to echo. And Brian really captured, I think, the stark nature of it. I think that uh, he's quite right that it's this winter's tough. Next winter could be tougher. But right now it is the focus on oil. And as you uh, said in the lead up, this is really a historic day that global oil market that developed with the end of the Cold War. Uh, you know, who knew that the U.S. was importing half a million barrels a day to make our refineries uh, more efficient? It's over. And now we have a partition uh, uh, oil market. And the stakes are going up and really the, the battle is beginning between the Russians on oil and uh, the, the G7 and, and the EU on oil. Why do you think today is such a profound day in the history of global energy markets? Because we, we're switching from one era to another. It refer, you know, kind of reflects what's happening with supply chains in general, kind of uh, backing away from globalization. But the fact that Russian oil is not, you know, Europe was Russia's biggest market. Uh, they've said no to it. And, and by the way, Brian, Brian mentioned diesel. Uh, in February, it's going to be even tougher because uh, Europe really depends a lot on Russian products like diesel. So, you know, this is just the beginning. And Alexander Novak, who's Russia's uh, deputy prime minister, but really their oil expert, uh, he threatened again on Sunday that Russia is not going to put up with these uh, with these price caps and is going to battle them. 
And Brian mentioned all those tankers that have been bought that the Russians are going to use. And the threat the Russians have, at least they've threatened it, is to hold back on oil supplies and make the market tighter. So we're in a very uncertain and indeed turbulent waters. Do you th agree with the, the point that Jeff Sonnenfeld was making in that fortune piece we referenced that the U.S. comes out here uh, strong in the case of its geopolitical managing of this and also strong in terms of its stance at energy markets? I don't know if you caught that 60 Minutes piece last night about the French president, but he seems quite upset about some of the subsidies and things that are going on now um, under the Biden administration. And maybe, you know, it's a, it's a quote unquote good sign that the U.S. is being so aggressive here and seems to have the pole position. Well, uh, certainly Macron and the Europeans in general are really going on now about uh, the U.S. subsidizing its energy in violation of WTO and uh, kind of American first policy. So uh, Macron has been vocal about that. I think what we have seen is that U.S. shale is really important. Uh, L U.S. LNG, which is made with shale gas, is now become a bulwark, a foundation of European energy security. And the Europeans are really looking to the United States. So I, you know, is 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 Joe Biden the new energy czar? I don't think so. I think it's a more contingent situation. But certainly we have some high cards. And the fact that we are now the world's largest producer of oil and gas gives us geopolitical advantage that we didn't have when we were the world's largest importer of oil, which was not that long ago. Would our Achilles heel, though, be the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Are you worried that it is running too low or that it needs to be shored up, um, that we could have a f future vulnerability that, that can't be met because we've chosen this moment to run down the supplies? Well, I think we still have 400 million barrels a day. And unless something that we can't imagine totally catastrophic happens, I think we certainly have enough supply. But I think it does have to be built up. And the administration's plan is to build it up when, when that day comes, when oil prices are cheaper. Do you think oil prices are going to be cheaper substantially in the next year or so? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that the uh, OPEC countries, OPEC Plus, does want to have that $90 uh, dollar floor. But I was listening to Steve Leisman and you before. And, of course, uh, GDP and what the Federal Reserve does will have a big impact on what happens to oil prices. So if we do have a global recession, but right now what we see is the oil market, can you imagine that it responds to every piece of news about COVID lockdowns in mm. China? And uh, and if those lockdowns are lifted, you're going to bring some significant demand into the market that has now been sitting on the sidelines. Well, and it highlights the difficulty uh, from the administration's point of view of lower oil prices coming hand in hand with the slower economy. Uh, can't have one without the other normally. Dan, we'll leave it there. Thanks for all your time today. It's great to see you. Great to, and great to see you. Dan Jurgen, S&P Global's vice chairman. Still ahead, unless you were living under a rock this weekend, you know the Netherlands knocked out the USA from the World Cup. But the real knockout could happen over the supply chain of semiconductors. We'll explain that ahead. Plus, a look at the perfect chart. The one our technician says looks almost too good, and that's why it's time to sell. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
back to the exchange, everybody. Should note stocks are at session lows right now as that weakness continues across the board. The Dow's down about 430 points. That's one and a quarter percent. NASDAQ, the worst performer, down about 1.7 percent. Here are some of the movers we're focused on. Silvergate Capital is down almost 8 percent today after a Morgan Stanley downgrade. They're saying the stress in crypto since the FTX collapse is driving uncertainty around deposit flows here in the near term. These shares are down more than 80 percent since January. Elsewhere, Tesla falling 5 percent as the company reportedly plans to cut Model Y production in Shanghai by more than 20 percent. Stocks around 183. That's been such a tough name lately. On the bright side, Morgan Stanley upgrading the airlines, United and Delta in particular, to overweight. They say 2023 could be a Goldilocks year for the carriers. Uh, still not seeing much of a boost to their trading uh, behavior today. And at the same time, City initiating Alaska Air with a buy on its pricing power giving JetBlue a neutral, saying their hands are full with scrutiny over that spirit deal, its partnership with American and more. And United is the only one of these names, by the way, that is positive on the year. Let's get to Kate Rooney now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Kate. Hi there, Kelly. It's great to see you. Welcome back. Here is your CNBC News update. At this hour, hackers linked to the Chinese government stole at least $20 million in U.S. COVID relief benefits. According to the Secret Service, the Chengdu-based hacking group known as APT41 stole unemployment insurance funds in over a dozen states. This marks the first public acknowledgement of a pandemic fraud linked to foreign state-sponsored cyber criminals. The Department of Homeland Security is once again delaying the full enforcement of Real ID security standards until May 2025. The rule would require people to get new identification cards to board domestic flights and access federal facilities. The act was originally supposed to go into effect back in 2008, but has been repeatedly delayed since then. And Nike is cutting ties with Kyrie Irving after the NBA star promoted an anti-Semitic film on his Twitter account. The decision comes a month after the shoe and sportswear company suspended its contract with Irving after he refused to denounce or apologize for those comments. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, they're just the latest. Kate, thank you very much. Still ahead, my next guest says there's one area of the market that's looking particularly good right now. We'll tell you the trade and four names in it that he says are well positioned for gains. Plus, it's been a bad year for REITs already as rising rates have been pressuring real estate across the board. Now we're seeing some more signs of stress pop up. Don't go anywhere. The exchange is back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Exchange. The big tech names tend to dominate the headlines, but they haven't dominated the recent comeback. That's actually been the small caps. Look at this. In the past three months, the Russell 2000 up 2.5%, while the Nasdaq is down 3%. Quarter to date, the Russells jumped 12% versus just 7% for the Nasdaq. And for the year, only a 17% loss for the Russell, compared with a 27% drop for the Nasdaq. And despite all that, small caps are still trading at a lower multiple. Let's bring in Brian Smolik, Hood River Capital's management's principal. Brian, it's good to see you again. Tell me where you think the best opportunity is for small cap stock picking right now. So... In small cap, we like it that's really inefficient. So you want to concentrate in names right now that have a really good demand picture despite the recessionary environment, can still do well in rising rates, and the valuations are quite defensible. So there are three or four stocks that we really like where we think that fits the bill. Uh, one of them is Kinsale, which is an ENS insurance company. They're growing their premiums around 40%. They're able to take up pricing well above inflation. Last quarter, they took up pricing around 
8% above inflation. Uh, the street's at about 20% premium growth next year. We think they can easily exceed that. Another company is Celsius, which is an energy drink company. Uh, people are going to buy their energy drinks no matter what in a recessionary environment. They have a new deal with Pepsi that increases the amount of doors they can sell to by around 45%. The street has 50% revenue growth next year. We think the combo of Pepsi helping them out plus their ability to continue to steal share, given the better product, should allow them to easily exceed those estimates. And yeah. aluminum is the main cost there. And that's that's improving. At least in the case of Celsius, um, it's up 53 percent this year. Kinsale's up more than 20 percent. And I remember you talking about these picks when we've had you on before. So these have certainly yes. been a sweet spot. But could even they um, listen in a recession? These stocks are all going to trade down again, obviously. Do you have a recession yep. playbook? Are you going to start to change your holdings if you think that that's the outlook we're heading into next year? That's been the playbook essentially this whole year. So again, we're, we're just trying to do bombs up stock picking across all the different sectors, trying to be agnostic with the macro, knowing that we're going to add value on a stock by stock basis. We're talking to 400 companies every quarter. We do think the macro picture is improving and that inflation is moderating. Uh, labor's getting a little bit better in terms of attrition's going down. You're able to hire folks. So we want to get ready to play offense, uh, particularly in the beginning part of next year. Interesting. Okay. So with all of that said, and I take your point that this has been the kind of year where stock picking has worked because the the macro backdrop has been so poor. So two other names you want to talk about, the Bancorp, that's only up, I think, maybe 14% this year. Calix, they're down 10%. So these are your two relative underperformers, although, again, still look a lot better than the broad market. What would you say to people who are a little more worried about banks, for instance, or uh, want to know whether Calix is going to turn things around? So with the Bancorp, the reason why that's going to continue to work is they're really asset-sensitive. And with their loan book, it's highly securitized. So if you go into a recessionary period, their losses are going to be really contained. They've already guided to a number that's $3.20 next year. The stock's around $30. So you're trading under 10 times earnings for in excess of 30% earnings growth. We think they're going to beat those numbers. Calix, uh, the demand picture has been great. So they sell equipment and software to rural broadband providers. There's a big government stimulus plan that's really hitting its stride next year. And they haven't been able to deliver all the product they've wanted to their customers because supply chain, and that's easing. So we expect both margins and revenues to have a really great picture for next year, no matter what happens with the recession. That's that's what you'll notice the common theme here is. I think all four of these companies can deliver 20% earnings growth, even if you're in a recession. Well, their performance this year has been impressive in what's been a very difficult stock trading environment. Brian, thanks for rejoining us. We appreciate it. Yep. Thanks. Brian Smolik, Hood River Capital Management. Still ahead, the U.S. has an ally in the Netherlands when it comes to the chip fight with China, at least for now. That's next on The Exchange. Back in a moment. Welcome back. On the soccer field, the rivalry between the Netherlands and the U.S. is over. But it's a different story when it comes to semiconductors and the machines used to manufacture them. Christina Partsinevelis is here now with why the U.S. is trying to sway the Netherlands to team up here against China, Christina. And it doesn't have to do with uh, football right now. I'm not sure if the Dutch want to play ball, but think of it like a monopoly. ASML in the Netherlands is the only company in the world that makes such highly specialized, extreme, ultraviolet lithography machines, imperative for making advanced semiconductors. 
receptors. The machines can cost hundreds of millions of dollars, and the U.S. doesn't want them in China. In October, the United States implemented new licensing requirements to stop the transfer of cutting-edge technology, AI chips, to Russian and Chinese firms. The equipment market is dominated by ASML in the Netherlands, but there are other big makers too, like Tokyo Electronic in Japan, and then three U.S. firms that would be Applied Materials, LAM, and KLA. Japan and the Netherlands have not been subject to new U.S. regulations. The Netherlands and the United States had talks in late November about export restrictions to China, but no official promises were made. ASML makes these specialized machines in Europe, and they contain very few U.S. parts, which is why they could circumvent the rules should they choose to do so. It's a similar situation in, J in Japan, and build products that do not rely on U.S. technology. Fortunately for the United States and the Biden administration, ASML stopped selling its most advanced machines to China back in 2019, but that shows that the ball is still in their court, ASML. Sure. What should they do now then, and how much pressure will they be under? I mean, we're talking about the very vanguard, the most sophisticated part of the chip market, basically, right? I mean, this is where, if we want to maintain an edge over China, let's say, it really comes down to these machines that they manufacture. Which So you, then you're asking what should the United States do? Because if that's the case, it's enlisting their allies because it is a monopoly. No one else is making machines like this. And the, the important thing is that for ASML, China is such a large customer. So are they willing to give up that entire customer? Most likely not. They can make another lower level of that lithography machine, but only for so long. Once we start to see maybe demand weaken or to go on the opposite effect, right? Because you have uh, domestic politics playing into this. You have the United States, Europe that want to build up their chip manufacturing uh, capabilities. And in doing so, that means they'll need more ASML machines as well. But has ASML basically played ball by saying, OK, we won't sell the most advanced machines to China? Well, yeah, they've actually been playing ball for the past few years. Right. So it's not just this year. They've, they've stopped selling those advanced, so the EUV lithography machines, but they could still sell the deep UV lithography versus the extreme ones. So there's a lot of acronyms in this world of <laughs> semiconductors, but um, that's, that's nothing stopping them. They could easily change that. The same thing for Tokyo Electronic, South Korea, I didn't even mention in there. So the United States went at this in a unilateral uh, approach when it should be really multilateral. And some are saying maybe the U.S. jumped the gun going too soon in October and announcing those restrictions without getting other countries on board. Fascinating. And maybe it would be nice at some point if we could develop a capability like this. But when you look at how involved and complex these machines, how flat the mirrors have to be in all the rest. You, for the, for the audience, you were telling me before the commercial break that yeah. you and your husband sit and listen and watch chip documentaries it's, at home. I, guess, I wish everybody else did that too. It's fascinating. It is fascinating, I, and it's an imperative. It's in every single electronic exactly. that we make, and it's going to be a huge part of the story going forward as we, we electrify absolutely everything. No, it really is. It's the area to watch, as you know, Christina. Well, that's you. what you're doing <laughs> at night. We know an exciting life you've been leading. Very, very. <laughs> Christina Partsonevelis. Coming up, I love you, you're perfect, now sell. Carter Worth says this chart is perfect, it has been for a while, but it's time to take profits. The name and the reason, next. Welcome back. Healthcare could be your best or worst performer this year, depending on where exactly you've invested. Pharma giant Eli Lilly, the mystery chart we just teased, hit an all-time high today, an all-time high, and it's on pace for a sixth straight year of gains. 
Meanwhile, the S&P Biotech ETF, ticker XBI, we don't have to tell you if you're invested in it. It's on pace for its worst year ever. It's lost a quarter of its market cap. My next guest checked the charts, says one of these is perfect, but he's selling here. Let's bring in Carter Worth. He's founder and CEO of Worth Charting. I'm going to guess, Carter, it's the Eli Lilly chart we're talking about then because the XBI one, I don't think we describe as perfect. Right. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes uh, some people say, why would you go against a good thing? You know, stay long, be long. And and that's a very important principle is letting your winners run. And yet Lily is, uh, it's almost as though it's become a safe haven where people are hiding in a very dodgy market generally and, and to some extent in healthcare. So uh, the chart you see uh, on the screen, that's from 2016. We're at the upper band of that well-defined channel. But just consider this, from the 09 low at $27 to where we are now at 372 Lily has tripled the performance of the healthcare sector um, and tripled the performance of essentially the S&P. At, at this point, ironically, even fundamental analysts, uh, their price target is essentially 12 months hence, they think it's worth exactly what it's trading at now. Um, at some point, uh, you take the road less traveled, you just fade something. And I think that's the circumstance now for Lilly. Yeah, that chart looks like the you know left-hand side of Mount Everest or something. Yep, what about the yep. XBI then? So if we turn to the biotechs, which obviously have had a tough year because of Fed tightening. The conversation we had earlier, maybe they're going to kind of pull back here. Does that create an opportunity or do you just still not like the space? No, I, I do. I mean, I, it has all the elements of a, a bearish to bullish reversal. In fact, consider this, that the XBI, the Spider Biotech ETF, it made its low in May and it's nowhere near um, that low, whereas the S&P in October made a new low. So the S&P and equities in general have a, a spring, summer low, May, June, and then they go below in October and now above. But the XBI bottomed early, it topped early. And so within healthcare, this is an area we like a lot. All right. Last final thought then, if you had to you know, say where you think this Fed macro trade is headed overall right now, what's your gut tell you heading into the end of the year? Right. I think consensus is overwhelmingly bullish, uh, seasonal periods, year-end rallies. Uh, we've done some polls and it comes out quite bullish. Everyone's expecting it up December. And while there's about only 19 sessions left, it's all about what happens in the beginning of next year. And some of the most uh, precipitous sell-offs of all time happen in January. Uh, and we saw that in the 73, 74 bear market right away. We saw it, of course, this year, Jan 4. I think you'll see some very heavy selling in the beginning of the year. Yikes. All right. We talked about a mountain, maybe now a cliff. Uh, that's certainly something to keep in mind as we head into your end. Carter, thanks for now. We appreciate it. Thank you. Carter Worth. Still ahead, red flags are cropping up in REITs. We'll tell you what they are, what they mean for investors, and what they signal about the future. That's next. Welcome back. One more thing before we go here. It may not be front and center right now, but trust me, it will be. There's a pretty alarming trend taking shape in the REIT sector, real estate investment trust. And just over the past month, two major players in the space have moved to limit redemptions. Diana Olick is here now with the details. Diana. 
Hey, Kelly. Yes, Starwood's S read is following Blackstone's B read in limiting investor redemptions. In a letter to investors last week, Blackstone said of its $69 billion non-traded read, B read has now received repurchase requests exceeding both the 2% of NAV monthly limit and 5% of NAV quarterly limit. That triggers the redemption limiting that according to the terms of the read. Now, Starwood's $14.6 billion S read headed by Barry Sternlich has similar limits. This appears to be less less about the current performance of the REITs, with S-REITs returns around 10% year-to-date and B-REITs around 9%. It's more about concern among investors with the real estate sector in a rising rate environment. Both S-REIT and B-REIT are heavy into multifamily apartments and warehouses. Now, Alex Goldfarb, an analyst at Piper Sandler, says it's been 40 years since we've had a hyperinflationary environment, the debt markets have shut down except for top tier, and the transaction market is also on pause. So despite these strong fundamentals, investors are skittish. Just look at the public REITs, which are getting hammered. Equity Residential, UDR, and Camden are down over 30% year-to-date, and Camden has strong fundamentals being in the Sun Belt. Warehouse REIT, Prologis, whose CEO told me recently that his business was still very strong, also down just over 30%. Kelly? And Diana S.L. Green, Manhattan's largest office landlord, now saying they're going to cut the dividend. Yeah, exactly. And it's part of that. Also, their fundamentals, though, are not as great as we know that return to office is not doing what people thought it might do. And we're just seeing work from home continue. And that's hitting the office sector very hard, especially in New York, where you're seeing tech layoffs as well. And that's just adding to the concern there. Where should we be watching next, Diana, for investors who might be skittish about their exposure to these real estate sectors? Well, you know, it, the, stock, the problem here is that the stocks are not following the fundamentals. So when you look at some of the fundamentals of these, look, apartments are weakening. Rents are coming back a little bit, but there's still plenty of demand out there. And again, for warehouse, it is still strong. You have to look at each sector by sector. Retail is actually doing a lot better than a lot of people thought. But again, those REITs are still getting hit. So it's a question of when do the stocks catch up with the fundamentals? Could the Fed change the story here or is this too... Is it something that's so large, driven by COVID and all the rest of it, as you've described, that even a Fed pause might not make a difference? Well, look, a Fed pause is going to help a lot of things like mortgage rates from going over 7% again, which we saw last month. And that is a big change for the residential real estate sector. So when you're talking about apartments, it would shift the demand in that if they stop raising rates as much as they have. And if that settles back, we get into a, a different kind of atmosphere when it comes to home buying, renting, et cetera. Single family rental REITs, also a big part of that. So of course it's going to have an effect. No All question. Right. Diana, thank you very much. Again, an important trend shaping up in those uh, that part of the real estate sector are Diana Olick. Now, speaking of redemption troubles, coming up next on Power Lunch, we'll discuss what's next for Sam Bankman-Fried and why he keeps speaking out publicly despite his lawyer's advice. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.